how IP is treated in taxation and through CGT events, the R&D tax incentive, the export market development grant, and the COVID changes to the Income Tax Assessment Act being the instant asset write-off and the backing business incentive, as well as a short point on goodwill and uh, fame and image taxation. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 288 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, episode 287, we discussed intellectual property as such. In this episode, Melissa McGrath of Coleman Greg Lawyers in Sydney will talk about the taxation of intellectual property. Last session, we talked about more detail around what is intellectual property. And in this session, we'd like to deal with how intellectual property is treated for the purposes of taxation. And in doing that, there's five things that we wanted to, five topics I wanted to cover. And that is which parts of, which IP is actually part of a CGT event, the R&D tax incentive export market development grants, and then the COVID changes to the Income Tax Act, which is the instant asset write-off and the backing business incentive. And then I'd like to make a small point about goodwill and the treatment of, of IP in relation to, in particular, in, in relation to transfers. So we'll come back then to start with CGT. And I think it's important that we understand that in the Income Tax Assessment Act, there is a definition of intellectual property and that refers to patentees, owners of registered designs and owners or licensees of copyright. But as we discussed in the last session, there's actually four sorts of IP and so the one that's missing from that definition is, is trademarks. Obviously, that means that you would treat trademarks in a different way. They're not a depreciating asset and my expectation is that the reason for that is that a trademark can be kept live and valuable in perpetuity, provided that the owner renews the trademark every 10 years and pays the fee. Whereas the other three types of intellectual property that are identified in that definition all expire at some point. You know, patents you'll typically get, if you've got a standard patent, it's 20 years and it expires and that's it, unless there's um, a short period of extension that can be sought for particular products that need marketing approval. But essentially, it, that's not an, a, a right that we can, can be kept alive in perpetuity. It's the same with registered designs and copyright, although the one caveat to copyright is that on occasion when the expiry period gets close to Mickey Mouse becoming not copyright material, there seems to be a large discussion about extending that time. So that's perhaps being a bit cynical to suggest that that might change. But for the moment, that's the, the distinction between the way that intellectual property is treated for CGT purposes. Each IP asset is to be dealt with separately. So you can imagine that if you're, if you're buying a business and it's easier to see with larger businesses, I suppose, where you do the full due diligence and you, you know, pull out the table of all of the intellectual property and confidential information that it may own. And, you know, when I've been doing those due diligences before, you, you're identifying the trademark specifically in the country that it's in so that you've got a, a complete record of all of the intellectual property. And then 
my expectation is that for for accounting purposes, they, they can be treated separately. But it's important for us, let's say a smaller transaction where that thorough due diligence and due diligence checklist is not necessarily followed. People should be very well aware that if there is a product that is patented, it may also have a registered design that's attached to it, or there might be some copyright assets that go with the two-dimensional drawing of the product. And so if that is all to be sold in the agreement then or in the transaction, then those things do need to be treated separately. Yes, especially then it might also have a trademark in there. And I think we raised yesterday, but it's it's worth repeating that when due diligence is done, it is important to understand not just what the intellectual property is, but the stage at which it, it is uh, traveling at the time of the purchase. So if it's merely an application, Everybody needs to understand that there's still a process to go through to that being registered. And so the value will change over time. I don't think that that doesn't have uh, me saying the value changes over time doesn't have a, um, a taxation uh, impact. I just wanted people to understand that if you purchase a trademark when it's just an application, you still have to pay and make sure that it gets through to registration. And if it doesn't get through to registration, then you may well have bought something that's not worth anything. And that, that goes the same for for uh, all of the other types of intellectual property, really. All right, so we should move on then, I suppose, to talk about the grants and incentives that are available. So the first one that I think you and I are particularly most familiar with is the R&D tax incentive, which is a program which has been in system for, what, five, seven years now and uh, was very popular when it was first introduced because it specifically targeted small to medium and still targets small to medium Australian companies and it provides a specific tax offset of about 43.5% which is refundable to companies in tax losses. Have I said that the right way? And so therefore it just delivers back a little bit of cash flow Well, that's the idea. But that's not to say that R&D is not, the R&D tax incentive is not available to the larger companies. It's just that there's a different tax rate of 38.5%, as I understand it, is applied. It's across all industries and it's across, it's for Australian entities. But, of course, um, you know, certainly this should be part of any IP strategy. If you're, talking, if you're talking to IP lawyers about how to protect the assets of a business from an intellectual property perspective, they will be thinking about whether there is any um, R&D tax incentive that can be obtained. And I think some people thought it was a grey area, but there is the potential for um, proprietary limited companies that may well be the subsidiaries of overseas entities applied to their taxation, as I understand it. You know, the, the law is one thing in understanding intellectual property and identifying something as uh, being taxable in a particular way or an incentive to be available, but the actual application of it, which is typically conducted by accountants, is, is not necessarily something that I'm dealing with every day. And on overseas entity can apply for the R&D incentive. That was, yes, and that, that is correct. Yes, and it can, it's even possible for a permanent establishment to apply for the R&D incentive. Yeah, I just don't want to promise too much, then find out that things have changed. Yes, yes. <laughs> But what I wanted to ask you with respect to the R&D incent tax incentive, do you find that things have changed? Because when I had more contact to the um, startup scene, I saw, and that was more in 2015, 2016, 2017, I saw a lot of standard websites that were built and had R&D tax incentives claimed 
on them. Do you find that has become stricter? Just to add to it, it's a self-assessment, as of course you, you know better than me. It's a self-assessment. So you can claim a lot. And whether you are then audited or not is probably a, a, a question of Russian roulette. But I, I saw a lot of, um, yeah, I saw a lot of just standard websites being claimed as Andy tax incentives. What, what are your thoughts? Has that changed, or is there still a lot of a lot? Have you seen a lot of things going through that weren't really in the weren't really in the mind of the um, lawmakers when they designed this? Yeah, well, this is it, right? That's why you see a flurry, I think, in particular areas because perhaps the lawmakers haven't thought about something and, and yet the legislation applies. And so you've probably got a whole host of people that you didn't expect to be included. That's not to say it wasn't appropriate for those people to utilise the incentive, but uh, I think that, that what you're talking about probably coincided with that moment in industry as well where people were really finding that you can have a business that's, based on websites and based on more tangential ideas, I suppose. The area where I've really looked at it is is more so in biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And I think this was a very popular topic for speeches and things several years ago. And now that everybody's settled into it and it's it's being used, uh, it's not as exciting, I don't think. And, you know, perhaps the idea was to really increase the market in Australia and if that was achieved, that has happened. But I still think it's a good it's a good incentive and it's a good idea for the government to leave that in place because, you know, we're seeing with COVID, you know, we're seeing a lot of investment from overseas. I know a lot of people are talking about all the Marvel films now being filmed here and whilst that's a slightly different taxation issue that others better place to speak to than me, you can see that, Australia has lots of different factors to bring um, overseas money to our shores and this is another good one, which I hope stays in place for some time. If you have intellectual property, look out for CGT and look out for the R&D tax incentive. Yeah, that's right. So if you're an accountant and you've got those things, obviously you apply it to your own business, but otherwise if you're advising clients, I just thought it was important for all of the um, our financial advisors out there to to be aware that that's that's how you approach that issue. I suppose the next one is the export market development grant. It's in addition to the R and D tax services, so it, it's something else to look at separately. And it's just a program assisting Australian businesses in developing their export markets. So but, taking their IP to the world, really, which is what we need. But the important thing is really that it needs, when you sell products overseas, they must have been manufactured in Australia. If you do R&D in Australia or or anywhere, and then you develop a new product, but then you have it manufactured overseas, then you can't access this grant. You can only access this grant if it is manufactured in Australia. That's exactly right. And I... I think that that makes good sense. The only thing I would suggest is that people be aware that it is a claim reimbursement from the grant. That's how it works. So there's a grant yes. and you claim reimbursement from that. Yeah. Yeah. So you first have to spend the money and then you get some of the money back. You get it back. Exactly. It's the same with the R&D tax incentive, isn't it? You first have to spend the money and then you get some of the money back through through taxes. That, yeah, tax that's office. exactly right. Yeah. Mm. It's the same, the same sort of model. That's right. It's just that there's a grant that you're able to apply for in relation to the exports. And I suppose, you know, we Australia's been 
I would like to see more highlighting of that, I suppose, because um, I'm told, well, I think the sentiment generally is that Australians are very inventive and we come up with some great things that are then developed and commercialised overseas. So anything that can keep manufacturing and development here is always a good thing. Now, should we talk about the COVID changes? Yes. To the Income Tax Assessment Act. Yes. Uh, and the two big ones for our purposes today are really the instant asset write-off and the backing business incentive, which is also known as BBI. It is important to know that those two things, are they're mutually exclusive. So if you use the instant asset write-off, which is something you can immediately deduct the cost of the depreciating asset, which includes intellectual property rights, but remembering our definition, up to $150,000 per asset. For the instant asset write-off. That's right. The asset, though, has to be has to have been first used between, I'm coming up to the anniversary now, the 12th of March and the 30th of June 2021. So the 12th of March 2020, instant asset write-off, being mutually exclusive to the BBI. So with the instant asset write-off, businesses can immediately deduct the cost of depreciating assets, including intellectual property up to $150,000 per asset. And you can understand that this is is to incentivize and inspire people in a COVID environment. And that's why I guess the, the limiter really is that the asset has to have been used or installed, which I'm not entirely sure how that will be applied, but used between the 12th of March, 2020 and the 30th of June, 2021. I mean, I, I guess that provides a limitation, but as you say, for business purposes, it's fantastic because that turnover... Uh, has been removed from the as a qualifier. If the, I, I think everybody probably understands how an instant asset yes. write-off would work, so yes. we probably don't need to labour that point. But the, and I think you said to me before that the instant asset write-off is more commonly used with you know small to medium businesses, and, and that makes perfect sense. What is the alternative is the BBI, which allows depreciation deduction of fifty percent of the asset's cost plus the usual depreciation deduction calculated as though the cost of the asset was reduced by 50%. So again, the, the asset must have been first used or installed between 12 March 2020 and 30 June 2021. So therefore, you know, the BBI will apply to financial year 20, like 2020 if the asset cost exceeds 150000 So the instant asset write-off, is up to 150,000 the BBI is is for things exceeding the cost of the asset exceeds 150,000 and if the that goes into 2021 so there's not but there's no limit of assets the number of assets that you can write off under the BBI or sorry under the IAWO our instant asset write-off or, yes. or the BBI in a single year. So that's also great. All businesses can write off all purchases of business assets until the 30th of June 2021. No limit in any way. The only limit is that up to 150,000, you can write it off straight away. And over 150,000, you can write off the first 50% straight away. So you can basically apply the instant asset write-off for half of the purchase price. And then the other half of the purchase price, you just depreciate as usual under the backing business incentive. Mm, exactly right. Now, I'm sorry, there is, is one thing I wanted to note. I think you might've just asked me about aggregated turnover, the instant asset write-off is the eligibility criteria does extend to businesses with an aggregated turnover of less than 500 million. 
That's an increase from 50 million. There is a limit, but it won't apply to many businesses. So for most businesses, there is no limit. That's exactly right. And similarly, the BBI criteria, uh, it's an aggregated turnover of less than 500 million. Okay, good. So any businesses over 500 million are not getting any of those instant asset write-offs. So they have to capitalize and then depreciate as usual or pool, pool as usual. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the last point about those two regimes, I suppose if we can call them that, to be aware of is that from the 1st of July 2021, the asset threshold of the instant asset write-off reverts to $1,000 for businesses with a turnover of less than $10 million yes. and $30,000 for businesses with a turnover of less than $50 million. I think it will be ex very generously extended, if not with those high thresholds, with lower thresholds. Yeah, I absolutely agree and I think it's absolutely appropriate. I mean, we've seen that sort of staged approach with the government with job keeper and job seeker. And these regimes are incentives for business for Australia to get us out of the COVID hole. And so it would make sense to me if it was extended, but I guess we wait and see on that. Yes. I mean, there are, there are a number of things sitting in the tax office that uh, <laughs> could do with a little bit of attention, but I'm hoping that this is top of the list. Although this probably doesn't come through the ta tax office. This comes through treasury, correct? Oh, sorry. I said tax office. Yes, treasury. Yeah. Treasuries, mm. sorry, my apologies. And, uh, and also we need to keep in mind all these write-offs are just a postponement of tax anyway. They are. Good. So that's the fourth one, instant asset write-off and BBI. We're going. I want to talk very quickly about goodwill, which is our number five. And then um, given that I've um, talked about a backlog of changes, there is one thing I'd like to talk about in terms of fame and image, which might be of interest to some uh, people who represent perhaps famous celebrities. They might already know about it, but I'll come back to that in a second. So goodwill, the point I wanted to make, everybody knows what goodwill is. Goodwill should be transferred with intellectual property when a business is sold. But there was a recent case involving McDonald's and the case, the judicial commentary really dealt with what is a transfer of intellectual property and how can goodwill be treated in terms of taxation? And without boring everybody as to the full details, the, there was a, a person who bought, I think, two new, new McDonald's franchises from McDonald's and, of course, therefore was allowed to use its intellectual property within the franchise scheme. And McDonald's wrote down its goodwill on the basis that it had transferred rights to the franchisee. But of course, a franchise is, is really a license to use intellectual property that is continuing to be owned by the franchisor. And so that write down of goodwill was not appropriate and the court said it had to be reversed. Makes perfect sense to me. I'm surprised they even tried it. It's not like you give out two franchises and hence your goodwill is decimated by 50%. Your goodwill is still what it is. Well, sometimes these things come up and you think surely that's accounting 101 or that's law 101. But um, I thought it was worth mentioning since it got yes. itself into. Yeah, no, no, it's worth mentioning, but I think it's common sense 101. I would well, I would hope so. But for those who are not quite sure, yes. then no. Yes. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was the potential for use of fame and image income. Currently, we have a system that allows people to use different corporate structures in order to license their image, maybe their name or their their trademarks 
and their image through different entities so that that income is properly taxed through a company. It is, as I understand it, it's a white paper actually came out in 2018 and was meant to be written into law shortly after, but has been bogged down by everything else that has to be dealt with, I imagine. Um, and that is that basically that corporate structure will no longer be able to put in, be put in place to stop, to allow people to have that kind of tax break. So any fame and image income would be part of a person's personal income. And you can imagine there was a lot of people pushing back on that because that would make a significant difference to the income of a lot of people. When you look at the trademarks register, there is a number of people who've registered their name. Many of them are overseas, so that may not come into to play in Australia. But certainly for Australian celebrities paying Australian tax, I would have thought that it would have a significant impact. Having said that, because it hasn't come into law yet, if anybody is representing a, a person of that nature, you might well want to register their their name and their image as a trademark and be have it license through a company before those changes come into place because hopefully they won't be retrospective. Okay. And I, I can imagine, yes, it would have huge tax implications because if you have income running through a company, you can park it and then slowly distribute it over the years so that, that you smooth it out because fame and image is very often short-lived. So you might have a, a lot of income over two years, four years, six years, eight years, but it probably is, it is a relatively short time. And so if you then in those two or four, let's say five years, if you then in those five years have huge income, but you park it in a company and then you just slowly pay it out over the next 20 years, then of course you will pay a lot less tax than if you're taxed straight away on full amount in those five years. So I can, yeah, I can imagine that it would have a huge, uh, huge impact. So at the moment, it's basically done that if you register a trademark through a company, the company holds the trademark, then the company can be party to the contract and has the revenue and then can pay dividends as it sees fit. So now the change is that even if the trademark is owned by the company, the um, income is contributed to the individual. That is the change, correct? That is my understanding of how the regime would work, yes. And as I say, it was only at a white paper stage, but that's it. And I, I think just to, to your point, and many people would be aware of this, I typically tell clients that have a relatively sophisticated tax structure that if you register a trademark in a, the name of a company or it's going to be a, a company trademark, you should have an IP holding company where the assets are you know, owned by that company and a separate entity that actually conducts any of the transactions so that if there is a dispute in relation to a particular contract, the assets themselves are not the subject or cannot be the subject of the outcome of the proceeding because they hopefully would not be, they wouldn't be able to be an, an asset that could be called upon in the yes, outcome. That makes sense. It's, it's basically like that you separate assets from a business so that business creditors can't go after your assets, just the same way you would separate the IP from the income. So the way it would work is one company would or one entity would hold the IP, would own the IP, would, would be the one that registered the IP, and then they license it to another of your companies, and then this company enters into contracts with third parties. Yeah. And it's just important to make sure, as uh, we mentioned in the, the IP session, that those sorts of things really must be in writing. 
the licenses, etc., must be in writing. As long as people have their paperwork up to date, I love to see people coming along and saying, "Here are my entities, and here's the here I, I can show you the license that's between this one and this one." You know, it's great hygiene. That covers all of the topics that we wanted to look at today, namely the CGT or how IP is treated in taxation and through CGT events, the R&D tax incentive, the export market development grant, and the COVID changes to the Income Tax Assessment Act being the instant asset write-off and the backing business incentive, as well as a short point on goodwill and uh, fame and image taxation. Welcome back. So patents, trademarks, copyrights, designs, etc. are all CGT assets. But only patents, copyrights and designs and other assets that expire with time are depreciable assets, but not trademarks. And the reason is that trademarks don't expire. And so they're not depreciable. I mean, trademarks don't expire as long as you renew them every 10 years. And then Just like any other CGT assets, you have CGT events, but for intellectual property, they're not usually the usual ones like A1, etc. But you have, for example, D1 for the creation of intellectual property or C2 for the cancellation or surrender of intellectual property and so on. And that's probably one hurdle with intellectual property, just finding the right CGT event to work things out. But after that... It is business as usual. You have the usual discounts and concessions like with other CGT assets. And then you have specific tax concessions, namely the R&D tax incentive, as well as the export market development grant. In the next episode, episode 289, Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will answer your practical questions about LRBAs. When should you set up the bare trust deed before or after the purchase? When do you need to specify the exact property the LRBA is about? And what minutes do you need? And so on. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.